0: Um, we are going to move into our message today. Uh, as you've gathered, we're talking about following Jesus financially. Now, uh, at first glance, you may say, well, you know, why are we spending time talking about following Jesus financially? Uh, well, here's why. Uh, if you think of some of the major themes of faith, uh, some of the key words in Scripture, like believe... Shows up all over the place, right? 272 times the word believe is used in the Bible. Or pray, 371 times, right? So if you think about a relationship with God, probably prayer is super important. Somebody taught you how to pray. Maybe you pray every day. If not, that's a good thing to pursue, right? Or love, right? Someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your strength. And the second, he said, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, okay? So love, super important, shows up, as you can see, 700-some times in Scripture. And you're not going to know the answer to this question off the top of your head, but if I were to ask you how many times does the word give show up in the Bible, here's the answer. Over 2,000 times the word give shows up in the Bible. Now, just a little disclaimer, I've not looked at all 2,162 times, But I imagine many of them have to do with just kind of ordinary, everyday, giving this, taking that, like just normal stuff. But So not all all of those are about giving financially or out of your resources, but many of them are. And in particular, we're going to take a look at a couple chapters in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, some estimate as many as 65% of the parables that Jesus tells have to do specifically with our possessions, whatever God has given us, our resources, including financial. And then one out of every six verses in that book of the Bible, 24 chapters, so quite a few uh, verses included, one out of six have something specifically to do with what we have been given and what we're supposed to do with it. And, and some have even said uh, that in what Jesus uh, speaks to and teaches in Luke's gospel, he talks more about our finances and our possessions than he does about the afterlife, about heaven and hell and salvation, which seems a little bit shocking. So there's good reason for us to spend a little time each year uh, focusing on what does God have to say about our stuff, the things that we have, the possessions we enjoy, uh, the finances maybe that we have accumulated or that we have been blessed with, what are we supposed to do with them? Now, I have to admit, when um, when we were getting ready for the series, and I saw the artwork that our team was putting together, I was a little bit weirded out by George Washington spying on us, right? Uh, and then I kind of was like, that's kind of cool, actually, that's kind of funny, because uh, he's on one of our bills. Is it the $1 bill? $1? Okay. It's been that long since I've handled cash money, so I don't remember who's on what. But So we're going to have George Washington kind of kind of watching us a little bit, but we're not going to focus on him, we're focusing on... What does Jesus have to say about how we handle our stuff, right, as we seek to become more and more like him? So what we're going to do is today and then next Sunday and then the next one after that, we're going to take a look at just two portions of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12, starting today and next week, and then a little section of chapter 14. And where this lands in the bigger part of the story is Jesus has already conducted the primary portion of his public ministry, about three years mostly in the Galilee, sometimes up in the Judea area. Uh, but now, starting in chapter 9, he has set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. He is hard-pressed and, de- hard and determined to go to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, where he knows he will be falsely tried, arrested, uh, crucified, uh, buried, and then raised from the dead uh, three days later. So he knows exactly what's coming, and he is bound and determined to get there. But along the way, he has some hard conversations with people that he interacts with. Starting in the region of Samaria, modern-day West Bank, by the way, uh, was a place that most ordinary Jewish people would avoid in the first century. They'd go around it rather than through it. But Jesus is going headlong through Samaria because he needs to get to Jerusalem. And along the way, what we begin to see is all the people who are just hanging on and aren't truly committed, start to fall away. He starts to speak more uh, forcefully about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And sometimes what he says rubs people the wrong way and they walk away. Uh, That can include what we're going to take a look at today. For in chapter 12, there's thousands of people gathered around Jesus. Chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that. And out of them, a random dude says, Jesus, help me settle a dispute with a family member over money. And Jesus says, listen, I'm not here to deal with that, but I'm going to take the opportunity to teach you a thing or two about what you have and how you should handle it. So that's the context for this starting point in our text. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now that's not a word we probably use all that much, but if you remember the Ten Commandments, depending on how you count them and divide them up, it makes two of them, okay? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff, right? Summarized. Um, to covet means to desire that which rightly belongs to somebody else and to plan to acquire it, usually in a dishonest way. So it's, it's, it's beyond just wanting something, not bad, right? To Want something new for your house, want some new clothes, want the new iPhone, like that's all okay, right? Uh, mine's an iPhone 12 mini, it's starting to die, so uh, we just finished the last payment on Sarah's phone, so sooner and later we're gonna go ahead and get the new one, because I can't plug it into my CarPlay, which annoys me, because I can't use the cool map feature, right? So silly stuff, but I want a new one, so that's okay, right? To covet is to desire what doesn't belong to you, and it becomes something that consumes you, turns maybe wanting something, into being obsessed with something, right? And, and then especially motivating you to acquire it, usually in a dishonest way. That is something the Bible is very clear and warns us against. Jesus says, be on your guard against how your heart and your mind can be twisted with desire for that which doesn't belong to you. And then he adds this. Notice the next part. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, Now here's what I've seen. Um, Stuff on this planet in and of itself is not the problem. The possessions you have, right, the heirlooms passed down in your family, even the income that you generate or that which you have saved in and of itself is not inherently bad, but how you handle it can be and how it can come to control you certainly can be. One's life does not uh, exist in the abundance of his possessions. You are not defined by your savings account, the car that you drive, the house that you have. They can all be good things, but if they come to define you, that's a problem. If you identify yourself with what you have, you're handling it the wrong way. Or if it becomes the thing that you spend all of the time and energy that you have focusing on, then it becomes an idol in your life, the thing that you're sacrificing other things for, or if it becomes the source of your security and your hope for the future, as we'll see, that's when it can become something that controls you rather than something that you enjoy for what it's worth. So Jesus begins in this moment by saying, hey, listen, I'm not going to deal with this dispute in a family, but I'm going to teach you a thing or two about the stuff that you have, and what you should do with it. And then he tells a story, a parable. I said before, 65% of the parables in Luke's gospel have something to do with what we have, our stuff, our possessions. Here's one of them. A parable, you may remember, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That is to say, it connects with everyday life. Shouldn't be hard to understand, but it has a deeper spiritual meaning. So he says, here's the story I want to tell you. There was a man, and the land of the rich man produced plentifully now it's an important point to note because it wasn't out of his ingenuity hard work dedication that suddenly he had a really good harvest it's what the land was designed by god to do the land produced the abundant fruit jesus says but he's the recipient of it and so he thought to himself what shall i do for i have nowhere to store my crops right he has an amazing year the return on his investment is off the charts, and he doesn't have anything to—he doesn't anywhere to keep all the grain and the goods that he has gathered. So here's what he comes up with: I'll do this—I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grains and my goods. Now I was talking to some friends this week who are in the building trade industry uh, about price per square foot for new construction today and it ranges between $300 and $500 a square foot, okay? Kind of on the high end right now for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm not sure what the price per square foot was in this day, but you can imagine tearing down your barns and replacing them with bigger ones is going to be a significant investment. Not always a bad idea. Like sometimes uh, what God wants you to do is to make a little more space, plan for the future, save up maybe for a rainy day like That shows up in the Bible, too. Not a bad thing to do. But notice the tone and the language that this man uses in the story. He says, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will store my grain and my goods. Notice how he's entirely focused on what he has. Pay attention to that. He goes on to say this. And I'll say to my soul, soul. Now, when's the last time you talked to your soul? (laughs) right? kind of an interesting phrase, right? But he's saying to himself, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, initially, and on the surface level, this seems like a wise thing to do, right? You've made it. Uh, you've succeeded in your career, maybe you got a really good bonus, maybe you got bought out, you sold your company, Uh, maybe you've been saving up for retirement and you've finally gotten there and you're saying to yourself, okay, now what I want to do is I just want to enjoy life. I've worked a whole life, now I want to enjoy life, right? That's not uncommon for us and not necessarily a bad thing. But what's interesting is this concept shows up a few different places in scripture and in some of the ways it shows up, it should make us pause and think. Like here's one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, I've just given you a snapshot here, but this is the longest extended conversation in the Bible about the resurrection of our bodies when Jesus returns. So that's the main theme Paul's talking about. But in the midst of it, he drops this. He says, "What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus?" So imagine, like in the Colosseum in Rome, also in Ephesus, fighting wild animals. Right? You could die at any point in time, and that's his point. If the dead are not raised, If we have no hope for life after we die here, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right? And then notice what he says next. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. What is Paul getting at? I think what he's describing here is sometimes when we are hopeless, we just cruise through life without much thought. Eh, Eat and drink because who knows, tomorrow we may die. Right? Without a sense of hope and anticipation of a better life in what is to come, without confidence in the presence and in the goodness of God, all we can do is just eat and drink and be merry, right? So you get the sense, not a good way to approach life. Now contrast that with this one, Ecclesiastes chapter two. Here, what scripture describes is a perspective on life that the author of Ecclesiastes Gained after looking out at everything in life, good days and bad days. How the rain falls on the righteous and then the unrighteous. How good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people, and vice versa. And he's concluded all of it, and he says this in chapter two: There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Right. So he's saying, if we can't control life, if we don't know what's going to happen, what should we do? We should. Uh, lean into the moment. We should enjoy it for what it's worth because tomorrow it may be gone. So eat and drink and, and enjoy the everyday life that God has given us. So which one is it, right? Is it a hopeless statement that life doesn't really matter, so just party until it's done? Or is it work hard and enjoy the fruits of your labor? Here's where I'd like to suggest the difference comes. The next verse, this also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. The difference comes in the perspective you have about what is in your hand, where it's come from, and where you're going. When you understand that everything you have right now, literally every single thing, ultimately belongs to God and comes from Him and has been entrusted to you, then your perspective on it is different. Right, Instead of being yours from your own hard work and dedication, blood, sweat, and tears, it is something that God has given you, maybe through those things, but it's yours for now, yours to enjoy, but it won't be yours for forever. More on that in a minute. So let's come back to our story. God said to this man, who had the big barns, remember him? Fool. That's not a good thing, by the way. Fool this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Right, so this guy who had this amazing year decided to tear down his barn, build bigger ones that night. He dies, and everything that he has is left behind. Right, we don't know the number of our years or days or the moment where we will die. God says he does, right, and so We don't know if what we have right now and what we are planning now will be around or will be around to enjoy for very long. So where does Jesus go with this? Here's the main point. Each parable he teaches usually has one main teaching point. Here's what he tells us it is. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So again, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's saying harder things. This is not an easy one, right? He's saying harder things to try to distinguish between who is ready to commit themselves to him when he's about to suffer, die, and then rise from the dead, and who's just hanging on for a fun ride. He says, if you put your hope and your trust in the things that you have, you will ultimately just be disappointed, especially when you have to leave it all behind. But if you're rich towards God, there's something else in store for you. So then what do you think Jesus means when he says being rich towards God? To help answer that, I want to take you to another New Testament book. Uh, this written by one of Jesus' apostles, Paul. And Paul describes <clears throat> the pursuit of godliness, and then he connects it to how we handle our stuff. So here's where he begins. Chapter 6, at verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world, right? What he's going to do is he's going to develop this thing of godliness. Godliness means putting into practice the words and ways of Jesus. We could put that at its heart, right? Seeking to live out faithfully what God is calling us to be and do, godliness, okay? Godliness, he says, with contentment is great gain. Why? because we know when we die everything we leave we leave behind we can't take it with us but this is a theme that he has developed let me show you a few other places if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our lord jesus christ and the teachings that accord with godliness right this is a theme he's developing godliness and the words and ways of jesus are one and the same earlier he says train yourselves for godliness for while bodily training is of some value godliness is of value in every way right so he's building this case that we're we're supposed to seek this Christ-like way of life because it holds promise for today and for the future for the present life and also for the life to come so that's the framework that Paul has as he's getting to teach more specifically about what we do with our stuff so then verse 9 those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Again, not light and fluffy stuff, is it? Right? It's a warning that the stuff that we have, uh, while itself is neutral, can come to consume our best energies and attention when we find our identity in it or put our hope and trust in what is in our hands when it becomes the source of our identity and our hope, then it becomes a trap, like Paul is saying. When that becomes all that we desire, we should be alarmed. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Notice it's the love of money, right? It's the attachment to our possessions that's a problem. Not the finances or the possessions it's it's not the uh, mustang convertible that you saved up for and then you spent years rehabbing in your garage and now you get to drive around on nice fall sundays because it's beautiful like the stuff isn't the problem it's how your heart and your mind handles it it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs so instead what does he say flee these things right flee attachment to the earthly things But pursue instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. These are some of the fruits of the Spirit we see elsewhere. Fight the good fight of faith. And then specifically to the handling of our finances, he adds this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but instead set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I love how this verse kind of encapsulates the heart of what we're trying to communicate. What we have comes from God, right? But it's given to us so that we might find joy in it. He's given it to us to enjoy. It's the same thing as we saw back in Ecclesiastes from earlier. Uh, it comes from the hand of God and it's for us to enjoy. So then what are we to do? Let's close with this. Verses 18 and 19. What does it mean to be rich towards God? It means this, To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We don't hold on to what we have as if it's our future and our security and our identity, but we are free handed, generous, ready to share, thus, in this way, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. By giving, you actually secure uh, a future that is better because you have used what you have to bless others. And you have strengthened your faith and your trust in the God who provides at the same time. And in this way, at the end of this verse, you take hold of that which is truly life. So this is where we're beginning. Again, this is part one of three. We're laying the groundwork to say that everything we have comes from God, ultimately belongs to Him, is entrusted to us for a time. We don't know the beginning or the end of that time, and so we don't hold on to it as our hope and security. But when we give generously and freely, to meet the needs of the world around us, sisters and brothers, family and friends, uh, transforming lives through our generosity, we experience the fullness of life both now and for what is to come. So as we land there for today, we have a couple questions for you to consider. If you're on your own, you can reflect on this. We're going to take a couple minutes before we release you for the rest of your day. Uh, But if you're with someone, lean over to them and share what comes to mind. Here are the two questions. Uh, Have you ever found it difficult to put your hope in God? rather than in your stuff, your possessions or your money, and why? That's a little harder, right? Uh, But maybe you're ready for that kind of conversation. Or secondly, what's one way that you can put into practice being rich in good works, like we just saw this week? We're going to take two or three minutes to reflect on that, and then I'll have you stand up and we'll send you with a blessing for the remainder of your day. But we don't want to leave this moment until you have a chance to ponder what God is saying to you. So we'll bring up the music a little bit. We'll take two or three minutes, and then we'll close with a blessing in a few.